Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pana ki a papa tūnuku, tangaroa, me ranginui. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. And now, here's some breaking geology news. Last week we heard from the recent New Zealand Ecological Society conference. Tonight, Veronica joins geologists as they gather for their annual meeting. For their 2015 conference, the Geoscience Society of New Zealand chose the theme Zealandia in Space and Time to explore many aspects of how our planet works, from natural hazards to natural resources and from plate tectonics to climate. One of the highlights was research that reveals that Antarctic glaciers have retreated rapidly in the past and that all it took was a minor climate warming. Richard Jones and Andrew McIntosh, both at Victoria University, have analysed rocks collected from different elevations along the Mackay Glacier, which drains the massive East Antarctic ice sheet. The chemical analysis shows that about 7,000 years ago, this glacier retreated and thinned very quickly, and that the process continued for several centuries, providing the first geological evidence for the potential of runaway ice loss in Antarctica. Well, we um, go into the field and we target these ice-free areas adjacent to the glacier, and we then um, collect rocks exposed on the sides of the glacier at various elevations. And these rocks are telling us the past thinning history of the glacier. We do this by measuring the nuclei signal um, contained within the rocks. So cosmic rays come from space, from things like supernovas. Uh, they bombard the Earth continuously. Most of them get eaten up in the atmosphere. These are the things that irradiate you when you're flying an aircraft but some of them make it down to the surface and they cause uh, small changes in the chemistry of the upper few centimetres of rocks. We can count the the changes that occur in the top of rocks like that to get an age for the rock surface, the time it's been exposed to the sky. Um, Not the age of the rock, but the time that the glacier dropped off this rock beside the ice. So quite literally, if you take a cut off the surface of the rock, you can see whether it's been under ice, in ice or exposed how far back can you go with that? It depends on the, the nuclides in the rock, but uh, it can go back um, several million years. Luckily, this was just a few thousand years ago, so I think we can do that really, really accurately. Um, and when you set a cut of the rock, that's exactly what we do. We go into the field with a saw and cut the, the top part of the rock off with a, with a saw, take the rock back to Wellington and uh, do the chemistry. Were you expecting this? I mean, you obviously went to this particular glacier for a reason, but were you expecting to see this? Uh, Well, we know today that some of these glaciers that are thinning rapidly um, have retreated into uh, over-deepening, where the the rock underneath the ice uh, deepens quite far below sea level. And we have a similar um, kind of trough downstream of this glacier that we studied. So the the theory was that this glacier in the past retreated and must have experienced some sort of similar thinning. But interestingly, we don't really know about the response time. So 
this study uh, is quite important in recognizing um, the fact that this occurred, but also that this um, persisted for several hundred years. I don't think we expected to find this at all. Um, I think that after we found it, we scratched our head a little bit and we realized that there was a good reason for it. But um, but we went down there to understand the retreat of the ice sheet since the last glacial maximum when the ice sheet was larger than present about 20,000 years ago. We know there's an ice sheet there today. It has a certain geometry. It was bigger in the past. We were trying to find out when that change occurred. What Richard found was really dramatic, that most of this change occurred in one event that lasted for just a few hundred years, and that occurred about 7,000 years ago. We thought it might have happened 15,000 years ago or something like that, around the time when most of the change was occurring in ice sheets worldwide. But actually it was 7,000 years ago um, in a climate very similar to today, and there was just this dramatic change in the ice sheet, unexpected. So can you tell me a bit more about the climate at the time? Because there must have been, if it's such a visible change, there must have been some change in the climate conditions. From ice cores, we know that the climate in Antarctica returned to something like today's climate around 10, 12,000 years ago. It was a bit warmer back then, actually, we think, um, but not much, just a little bit warmer than today. And around 7,000 years ago, it was probably about the same as today. We don't think that the the climate specifically around 7,000 years ago was the thing that caused the ice retreat. The warming that occurred at the end of the last ice age was the trigger of the massive retreat of the ice sheet. And uh, at a certain point, uh, Mackay Glacier, where, where we've been studying, um, became sort of independent of that large ice sheet and uh, then underwent its own rapid sort of transformation about 7,000 years ago. We probably wouldn't look for individual kind of tr climate triggers at that time. It, it might have been something pretty minor um, that caused the ice to, to retreat back at that time. It could have been also, rather than a change in, say, temperature or, or other conditions, it could have been influenced by changes of the ice sheet around it? Yeah, as the ice sheet was retreating after the last ice age, the critical point was when this particular glacier separated from the rest of the ice sheet but it would still kind of probably be some small little change in the climate, uh, possibly um, just a couple of years of warmer ocean temperatures that would have been enough to initiate the retreat of that particular glacier. But then once it encountered this, this deep trough, that's, that then accelerated the, the ice loss of the glacier. I'm always tempted to ask, you know, what does it mean for our future? But I'm not sure whether we can draw conclusions from this finding for what might be coming, or can we? Quite a few of the outlet glaciers um, of the Antarctic ice sheet are thinning rapidly and are theorised to kind of undergo massive changes in ice loss. So this provides some insight that if you get a retreat of glaciers into some of these overdeepenings, which exist under the West Antarctic and East Antarctic ice sheet, then ice loss can accelerate for several hundreds um, to a thousand years. So it's, it just provides some insight into this process um, and uh, provides a kind of a time frame of uh, certain changes that we could expect in the future. Another way of, of thinking about this is that um, before Richard's study, um, we had theory about how ice sheets might respond and we had computer models that in some respects encapsulate that theory, um, but we had no direct geological evidence that this had occurred in the past. Uh, we had observations from satellites that spanned just a few decades um, 
from observations from people. So, you know, the first time that explorers went to Antarctica, they noticed the extent of the ice and so on. But Richard's study um, extends that period of observation back over thousands of years, not just sort of a, you know, tens or, or a hundred years. And that gave us an example of this um, this sort of rapid ice retreat that can um, be initiated from this thing called the marine ice sheet instability, the process that could result in very rapid, unexpected change in the future. So it gives us a sort of an analogue for what could... I mean, even though it, it doesn't provide predictions, it does provide an example um, of how this can occur, um, the, the period of time that that might extend over, and also the, the rate at which ice might retreat at, um, because... You know, from Richard's study, we get clear statistics that tell us about thinning rates and thinning periods um, for this kind of behaviour. During the conference, the Geoscience Society awards several prizes, including the Mackay Hammer for the best publication. This year's winner is University of Auckland structural geologist Julie Rowland, or JR, to her colleagues, who is the first woman to win this award in its 59-year history. I hope that it's not another 59 years for the next woman to get it and I see a lot of really wonderful science done by women in New Zealand and in the earth sciences and um, I felt quite humbled to get this award because I know that there are wonderful papers written by lead women authors that have gone before me and that haven't made it either to be nominated or or to be awarded it so uh, gee I'm hoping things will, will change and there'll be a higher representation in the future. Tell me a bit about the paper. Yeah, the paper is uh, one that I wrote uh, on looking at active geothermal areas that we have in the Taupo area and looking at them as analogues for the deposition of gold in systems like we have up in the Coromandel. So I've taken everything I can possibly pull together on understanding those geothermal systems to understand how gold might get deposited in what we would call epithermal mineral deposits. Can you talk me through that? Just <laughs> yeah. that last bit? <laughs> yeah. So the fact is that in, in, the, in the total volcanic zone, we have water that could be, oh, I don't know, 250 degrees Celsius coming up from depth. And when it's hot like that, it carries with it solutes or dissolved uh, metals, for example, and, and other, other bits and pieces. And as that water comes up through from depth, maybe six kilometres down, it cools, its pressure changes, and it may if the circumstances are right, drop out gold and silver uh, and other bits and pieces. That's a process that would apply to all mineral deposits. Not necessarily all deposits, but hydrothermal ore-forming deposits. And um, probably one of our most prospective areas in the country, the Coromandel area, uh, has deposits of this type. Is that... If I were to describe the area you work in, is that what it's about? You told me earlier you're interested in rocks, particularly in broken rocks. (laughs) That's right. So what I work in is I I like to understand rocks and how they break under some sort of tectonic forcing. And the reason I like to understand that is because what I really want to uh, get at is how the fluid that I might be interested in, it could be hot water carrying gold, but it it could be uh, molten rock or magma. I want to understand how that gets localised Uh, and moves through the crust, either for the purpose of making a geothermal energy resource or a a gold deposit, or perhaps for some sort of hazard application. So it could be either resources or it could be hazard? Resources or hazard. 
And even continental breakup. Ah, yes. So <laughs> I, I worked a little bit in AFA, in Ethiopia, uh, to understand how continents break apart because um, that's one way in which you can create a lot of fractures and faults of the sort that I'm interested in. I'm interested in environments that are being pulled apart or extending, and that's where you tend to have the sort of geothermal activity. And so I've worked quite a lot in, in AFA, and uh, it's been absolutely exceptionally lucky. I've seen some amazing things through studying this earth science. Can you remember what drew you into it? Because in some way it's not surprising that you're the first woman to win the award because the representation of women in earth sciences is probably nowhere near half-half. It's increasing a lot. A lot of my students are female students and have been, I would say, up and sometimes more than 50% for some time. But when I started out, of course, I was one of perhaps two or three students uh, who were female within, within my class. But I went off and I did something else for 10 years and then I thought, oh, I, need to, I need to change and do something that's intellectually stimulating. So I came back to university and uh, finished my degree in geology and I was so smitten by it because every little bit of energy I put out I got back and it, it merged two things that I really like it merged intellectual thinking with being in the outdoors and I, that, that's a, a very attractive mix for me In your work you really, um, even though you're looking at how hot fluid moves through rocks you are spanning quite a range of different aspects from geothermal energy right through to resource deposition. On the one hand I'm doing green energy studies and on the other hand I'm doing work that might uh, ad advance the minerals industry. Uh, I find that quite entertaining because for me it's the same process, it's a fascinating process but for the public oftentimes there's a, a complete, completely different attitude to the green energy component of my work versus the mining component. What I would like to see is a much greater understanding by the public and by all stakeholders in how we use our resources of what uh, the true impacts and costs are of, um, of resources in New Zealand. And for that we need better information from scientists. We also need to understand uh, better about uh, how our regulations and legislation work in this country compared to other countries where we might use resources uh, because we should be making I think decisions that are responsible and ethical decisions but we can't do it with an attitude of not in my backyard because we're part of a global community uh, and I guess for me then the next phase of my work is to start looking at the social. What's the social license to use our resources? What, what is the cost? Uh, can we? Or do we say, no, we'd rather uh, take resources from other countries that don't have such protective legislation and regulation? I think those are interesting questions. Many presentations focused on earthquake hazards, and Niwa marine geologist Phil Barnes presented new insights into the tectonic landscapes of North Canterbury and the structural context of the Canterbury earthquakes. The Canterbury earthquake sequence um, ignited a geoscience response that was quite extensive. So a lot of New Zealand universities and, and CRI scientists like myself were involved in studies of the of the crustal structure through the North Canterbury area, and to to try to understand that because the active faults in that area are hiding under the Canterbury Plains. We have to use remote sensing techniques like um, under, looking at um, interpretations of gravity or seismic reflection data. And this allows us to look at the structure of the faulting in the rocks beneath the Canterbury Plains themselves. Can you describe some of it? 
How complex is it? Sure. Well, the Canterbury earthquakes occurred really at the feather edge of the plate boundary zone in the, in the South Island. So that's a very wide zone of faulting that extends from Westland across to, to the North Canterbury region. And the Canterbury area sits right on the edge of that, and it's characterised by what we call crustal shortening. It's where the region's undergoing compression in a northwest orientation. And the result of that is that for the last million or two years, the North Canterbury uh, region has experienced uh, faults that have become active again uh, in an area where there were very old faults in the basement rocks already. And the development of new faults um, and reactivated faults through the North Canterbury area has led to quite a wide um, spectrum of, of active faulting that we now see hidden away under the sea floor and under the Canterbury Plains themselves. What's your focus on the sea floor, on the marine faults? Yeah, my personal work's been focused in the Pegasus Bay area where there was an extensive uh, data set collected by oil companies actually looking for oil in the area. And they collected data back in the mid-2000s and immediately after the February 11 Christchurch earthquake, we responded by collecting some additional seismic reflection data in the bay and then undertaking um, a study of regional faulting in Pegasus Bay. Now, one of the advantages of marine seismic reflection techniques is that you can cover quite a lot of ground and you can get a spacing of good quality seismic reflection data much more effectively and cheaper than you can do so on land. So the marine data set really offers us the best uh, look or best window into really what's going on under the immediate Canterbury Plains right next door where those earthquakes were occurring. Overall, would you say that we understand what lies beneath the plains a lot better? What we understand now from both uh, land-based studies, the studies of the actual earthquakes themselves and the study of the marine data, it's collectively giving earth scientists a much better picture really of the types of structures and tectonic, what we call tectonic overprinting. It's where we see that recent phase, a recent stage of um, contractional deformation in earthquakes over the top of an older fault system. And so we definitely have a much better understanding of the context of the Canterbury earthquakes. There's much more data offshore to view those structures with the marine data set than there is on land. The, the seismic reflection data onshore, it's rather patchy, um, certainly not of a regional enough extent to really do what we have been able to do offshore. And it's been founded really at specific petroleum exploration targets in the North Canterbury area, so it's quite patchy data. Does what we know now give you a sense of what to expect from that region in terms of seismic hazard? I guess there's sort of two, two ways to answer that. One of them is that um, the Canterbury earthquake sequence has heightened the general level of seismicity in the Canterbury area. So you, you would have to ask that question to the seismological specialist in terms of what they forecast the general um, frequency of earthquakes uh, in the coming years to decades sort of scale. So that's really not my domain. But what we have been able to contribute in terms of ongoing earthquake hazard is that we have now documented uh, the location of some active faults that were hiding away under the seafloor. They come down and towards the Waimakariri area and we've mapped them quite well. We've been able to constrain their sizes, the rates of activity on them, and from that type of information we can make estimates of the 
magnitudes of earthquakes we would expect on them and from the rates of displacement on those faults we can estimate how often those earthquakes occur on average so we, we, can, we can estimate what the recurrence interval is between those earthquakes as well. New Zealand geoscientists are part of the International Ocean Discovery Programme, a major global initiative to explore Earth below the sea and to study the history and dynamics of our planet. GNS science geologist Stuart Henrys explains how New Zealand will contribute during the drilling projects that will take place in our waters. One of the things that, that having a drilling program creates is a huge international momentum for the science. So in the intervening years we've had to collect a lot of data to satisfy the drilling targets, but we also collect a lot of complementary science that goes with the drilling and that will go post-drilling as well. So where is that drilling spot or the location for that planned project? So the, the, one one that's that's been approved, been the one that's been proved and committed for drilling is offshore Gisborne. It's a project that will look at um, a slow-slip phenomenon. These are earthquakes that don't harm anyone but occur regularly and are quite large magnitude, occur on the planet interface. And it's a really nice uh, laboratory in Gisborne because they're quite shallow offshore Gisborne. And it gives us a, um, a flavour to look at uh, stress build-up and release on the plate boundary and then accumulated stress again and another slow slip event. So these occur every roughly every two years and so we will put in um, monitoring equipment as part of that proposal and that monitoring equipment will stay in for over a decade so we'll record a number of slow slip episodes during that time. In addition we really want to understand what the conditions on the plate interface are like so we're coring material that is currently um, away from the deformation front, but we know that that same material over time uh, moves and, and becomes part of the plate boundary. So we have a, a good record then of the proto-subduction zone. So when you say slow slip and earthquakes of a large magnitude, it's, it's kind of a cumulative? It is. That's the, the cumulative displacement in a slow slip event. If that um, displacement moved one fast event, a fast earthquake, then that would have the equivalent magnitude. So this displacement occurs over patches of the subduction zone that are 20, 30, 40 kilometres wide. What you're describing, it sounds like literally watching earthquake processes as they happen yep. repeatedly in this case yep. over a 10-year yep. period. Yes, so there's a, I mean, it's really cool, you don't have to wait uh, two or three hundred years for a large earthquake or a thousand years for a really big earthquake, we can capture the processes of an earthquake cycle because they're so shallow offshore Gisborne, we can capture the processes and the mechanisms that perhaps lead to the same, the same mechanisms lead to fast and damaging earthquakes. Can you relate those slow slip earthquakes to the ones that happen same, on the same plate boundary but happen in a singular rupture? In 2011 in the Tohoku Ori earthquake that was about magnitude 9 and created that tsunami. There were a couple of episodes of slow slip that led up to that event and so we want to understand what the relationship is between big fast earthquakes and those slow slip events and, and the key to understanding that is how the stress from slow slip events uh, propagate and load different parts of the plate interface.
So that's a key problem that we want to tackle. So I should say that, you know, ultimately it would be nice to drill right down to the plate interface itself. So that what we're drilling with the, with the 2018 uh, riserless hole is just really shallow and we'll put these instruments down there. But we have a proposal to bring out an even larger drilling ship, scientific drilling ship, to draw right down to the plate boundary, and that's our long-term 10-year plan. Apart from that side, have you got other sites in mind that are in this approval process as part of the Ocean Discovery Programme? Yeah, we do. We have quite a few. So those are separate proposals led by... um, by principal investigators, and so we have a number of those that we've capitalised on the fact that the the Gisborne slow slip um, created a lot of international tension, and so we're using these other proposals to drag the ship around from the Indian Ocean to New Zealand. And so one of those is um, to drill in the Brothers Volcano, and that's the idea there is to um, to look at fluid rock interactions, and that's headed up by Cornell Durand. There they will drill, again, shallow holes, but principally to look at mineralisation and the role of fluids in that mineralisation. We have another proposal that's not quite as mature, but we're hoping to get that reviewed and to the stage where it can be scheduled, and that's looking at subduction initiation processes in the Tasman Sea. So a long time ago, the current seduction system that goes from Wellington all the way up to Tonga and Fiji, that um, was further to, towards Australia. And as the over millions of years that rolled back, we're looking at kind of unwrapping that and looking at the initiation of that process in the year, scene, 55 million years ago. And the kind of forces involved to create that seduction zone, that's the kind of testing we will be doing in the holes um, that we have proposed there. So that proposal is headed by um, Rupert Sutherland, and it's at the stage where it's, it's been reviewed and needs to be kind of approved to go forward to scheduling. And that was Stuart Henrys from GNS Science. You also heard from Niwa marine geologist Phil Barnes, University of Auckland structural geologist Julie Rowland, and Richard Jones and Andrew McIntosh from Victoria University, who all gathered at the 2015 Geosciences Conference. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.